Well, in all kinds of, of various contexts, uh, what the, the, the what now question is a question that regularly arises. Uh, for example, it was just graduation season, so, so we finished a certain amount of schooling, and then the, the immediate question follows, what now? Uh, what's going to happen next? Am I going to go to work applying my schooling, or am I going to pursue further training? Uh, what now on the other side of the, of the education that I've completed? Or, or we achieve a certain level of professional competence, and we might ask, what now? What, uh, what's next in, in the career path from here? Or maybe it's a new phase of family life. We start having kids or the kids get older and we ask, what now? What does this next phase of family life look like? Uh, so there are many positive and exciting ways in which we ask the what now question throughout the course of our lives. Uh, but then we can also ask the question in darker times, in more uh, acutely concerning times. Uh, so maybe we experience some significant loss. A loved one passes, perhaps, and we ask, what now? Uh, what does life look like on the other side of the death of somebody that we love? Or maybe it's unforeseen financial circumstances that leave us in a, in a vulnerable place and we ask, what now? So how are we going to navigate now given the tight times that we're, that we're facing? And this, and this question can be present in, a, in an acute way in our spiritual lives as well because we can face particular seasons where maybe it's a, it's a propensity towards temptation of a unique kind that's brought us to a low place. And maybe it seems like the psalmist that we're, that we're trapped in that miry pit and the question can come in our spiritual lives, what now? Uh, or, or maybe it's a season of spiritual discouragement in general or maybe confusion in our life of faith in particular and, and things have gone in a way that we just uh, can't quite see a clear way through. And so we'll ask the question, what now? What does it look like uh, to follow the Lord in, in a time like this? And as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning, it's, it's really this what now question, or maybe better to say it's this what now tension that, that is uh, present as the background to our verses. Uh, back in chapter 8, as we know from our studies, the people of Israel have demanded a king. Uh, we know that in the minds of Israel, this king like the nations was the one they believed would, would really come and be worthy of their hope. He's the one who's going to come and, and bring the, uh, the rescue that they need, the fulfillment maybe that they need, the stability that they need. Uh, but as we've seen in the narrative as it's unfolded, King Saul, uh, rather than, than ultimately fulfilling the people's hope, Saul has proved uh, to fall far short of what the people actually needed. And he's instead served himself. He's, he's disregarded the word of the Lord, as we saw in the last a chapter he's ultimately rejected by the Lord as king over over the people so he's he's certainly not the one to place hope in and so the question is lingering here for us what now uh, by the end of chapter 15 we're told the Lord regretted making Saul king we have Samuel the prophet in a place of mourning because of Saul's unfaithfulness and failure and while we know the Lord has promised to provide a king uh, after his own heart, there's been this, this promise that's run all through the narrative. We still feel the full letdown uh, that Samuel himself is feeling here at the end of chapter 15. What's, what's going to take place now? Uh, the king we were hoping in has clearly been rejected. Those who are paying attention publicly would notice he was rejected because Samuel didn't attend uh, Saul's recent worship service. He was without the prophet of God, so there would be a public awareness of, of Saul's um, failure, at least uh, of Saul's uh, removal from the blessing of God uh, there in that way. And so what now? What, what is this going to mean uh, for the people of Israel? 
And so as we come to these first 13 verses of chapter 16, uh, we, we have that, that narrative tension that, that's built. Is there hope for the people of God? What, what does it look like to move forward from Saul's failure? What does it look like to live out lives of faith in the context of these very damaged hopes? Um, these are no doubt questions that would have started to form, at least in Samuel's mind and, and in the minds of Israel too as they're paying attention with the Lord's rejection of Saul as king as it became more and more obvious. We thought Saul would be the guy, but clearly Saul, Saul is not going to be the one. Samuel the prophet, he isn't supporting him anymore. So what, is it, what does it look like to live out our faith now in the context of these, of these dashed hopes? And that's a question that is present here, but it's a question that can be very real in our own minds as well as we live out our lives of faith under God. Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, we know that spiritually the valleys can come. Maybe it's because we've placed our hope in things that don't actually fulfill what we, what we thought they might. Maybe it's because seasons of discouragement, uh, seasons where we're unable to see clearly through uh, what the next phase of life is going to look like as we seek to be faithful to Jesus. Those things confront us and, and we wonder to ourselves, how, how is it going to look going forward? What are we going to do from this point? We have this what now question present for us. And what we find in our verses today is we find uh, that the, the narrative itself gives us some helpful guidance along the lines of answering this kind of question. Um, Saul let the people down, so is, is there hope uh, really going to be found in him? The answer to that is no. So how do they think about moving forward? And, and how do we think about moving forward when we face uh, circumstances uh, that reflect these kinds of difficulties in our own life? And so, and so we're going to start working through this today. Again, we'll take it in three parts. Uh, the first, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll focus on verses 1 to 5. And again, we're thinking about this in all, all under this big heading of the what now question. What's going to happen next for the people of Israel? What happens next when we find ourselves in a, in a spiritually despondent condition, whether personally or corporately? What happens next? And we see, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, that in a context such as this, the Lord's purposes continue even amid the, we can use the word adversity, but we could actually, from our text, use words like even amid the sorrow, even amid the fear. The Lord's purposes continue even in the midst of these kinds of things. So, so if you just look there at the beginning of chapter 16, uh, well, actually, we need to be well aware that, that the beginning of chapter 16 starts right where chapter 15 left off, in a sense. And, and that last verse of chapter 15 didn't leave us in a very happy place. Because chapter 15 ended with the narrator telling us, even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. So that's where, that's where things were left last time. Things were left in this dark place. Uh, the Lord is, is, is expressing his own uh, turning back from making Saul king. And there we have Samuel, who uh, first was angry back in verse 11 of chapter 15. Now he's just in a place of deep sadness. He's sad over all this failure on the part of Saul as king. He's failed the people. He's failed the Lord. Saul has. And the Lord's turned back from making him king. And Samuel is, is experiencing this significant personal sorrow because of it all. And, and while we don't know how much time passed between the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, one thing is clear, and it's that the sorrowful condition that Samuel is experiencing, it hasn't changed. He's still in this place of sadness because things start in chapter 16 with the Lord addressing Samuel, and, and we find the prophet in the exact same condition we left him at the end of the last section. So, so in verse 1 of 16, God says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? There's been a 
somewhat decent passage of time there, whatever amount of time has passed, it's, been, it's actually been long enough that the Lord now confronts Samuel with at least a mild rebuke about this ongoing sorrow that he's experiencing over Saul's failure. Saul's been rejected by God as king, and Samuel's mourned that sadness and failure, but now the Lord comes to him and says, you know, the, the, the time has come to keep moving along. There, there's work that needs to be done. So he addresses Samuel in the context of his sorrow, and instead of mourning, the Lord now calls Samuel to engage in this process of anointing the next king that God has promised. So Samuel's living in this sorrowful position, but we can't forget that God has promised to take care of the situation that's going on in Israel. He's going to provide a king like the people need. So he tells Samuel in the rest of verse 1, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you, God says, to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Um, so, so we remember back to earlier events how the Lord has said that he'd replace Saul with another king, a better king, and, and the time for God's promised purposes uh, to continue along these lines has come. So he says to Samuel, I'm sending you uh, to anoint this other king. Now, now Saul, we remember from back in chapter 8, Saul was the, the king the people wanted. Remember even how Saul's name in Hebrew sounds like the Hebrew word for ask? So Saul was the king of, people's, of the people's asking. Now the Lord, he flips that. He says, I've chosen a king for myself. This isn't going to be a king of the people's asking. This is going to be the king of my choosing. He's sending Samuel really on the, on the pinnacle ministry mission of Samuel's entire prophetic career. Samuel is going to anoint David. And from David's going to come the Messiah. The whole biblical narrative is just going to expand extraordinarily from this point on. Here's the, the, big, mess, the big mission for Samuel as a prophet is coming. However, while Samuel is called from this place of, of mourning and sorrow to get active, what do you notice in verse 2? Samuel's not jumping up and down dancing for joy because work's going to go on. What does he say in verse 2? How can I go? Saul is going to hear about this and Saul's going to kill me. So, so, so we, have, we have a couple things compounding here. Not only is Samuel called to move out of his stage of grief over Saul and get busy with the Lord's work again, so, so just that alone is something that could be just startling to his countenance in general. It's time to stop. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? It's time to stop being sad? How, how easy is that to do? It does nothing. Why are you telling me to stop being sad? I can't stop being sad. Right? But the Lord's coming to him. It's time to snap out of it, Samuel, and get to work. The Lord does this to his servants on a number of occasions. We see through the Bible. Time to get going. So Samuel's not only got to get himself sorted in terms of the sorrow that's present in his heart, but the Lord is asking him to do something then that's actually really, really dangerous. You need to go and anoint Saul's replacement king. And we have to remember that, that what we learned at the end of, by the end of chapter 15 is Saul is still very stubbornly committed to retaining his royal role in Israel. We know from the end of what happened last time, Saul has no plans to submit to the Lord's will. The, the, the Lord may have rejected Saul as king, but he is still totally committed to keeping up appearances, retaining his political power, and all that's going along with that, which we see again as the narrative continues un, to unfold. So, so obviously in the kingdom of Israel, the most dangerous thing you could possibly do at the moment would be to be Samuel the prophet going to anoint a replacement king for Saul. In, in one sense, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a suicide mission feel to all of this because Saul is all about preserving himself as king. So, so we just have to, to catch the flow of what's happening here as, as things begin. First of all, Samuel's mourning. Now, the Lord's calling him to move past the sadness stage and engage in the great danger of bodily harm phase of his ministry. So, so how can I go? Samuel says, Saul's going to hear about this and he's going to take me out. Samuel's worried, and with good cause. 
And so the Lord answers this concern in verse 2 by telling Samuel that he can go to Bethlehem. And, and, and as he goes, he's just to carry out his normal work of offering a sacrifice so as to not draw unnecessary attention. So, so then in the course of the sacrificial ceremony, Samuel can invite Jesse and his sons. And as Jesse comes with his sons, the Lord's going to indicate then the one Samuel's supposed to anoint. So, so Samuel can go do his regular work. That won't really raise eyebrows. That's what Samuel's job is under God anyway. He's going to go and offer sacrifices just as he would regularly do. Um, but, but there can be this, this clandestine anointing purpose to his trip as well. So in verse 4, uh, literally in Hebrew, we read in verse 4, Samuel did that which the Lord spoke. Samuel did that which the Lord spoke. Which, which just as a side note, is, is the thing in the narrative of, of Samuel so far that marks out the difference between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Doing what the Lord spoke. Doing what the Lord said. Remember all that repetition from, from our last chapter. Samuel here is, is shown once again to be faithful, even in the context of recovering from sorrow and in the context of a very well-founded concern over his personal physical safety. Samuel still does what the Lord spoke. Okay, so he goes to Bethlehem. And we keep reading here, when the elders of the town of Bethlehem meet Samuel, we're then told they're trembling. They're trembling. So in fact, in verse 4, that the Hebrew word for trembling is placed out at the front of the clause, which is a, a Hebrew language way of emphasizing the significance of, of something that we're reading in the text. So the, the point is drawn out in a sense that these elders, as Samuel approaches, these elders are really, really, really frightened. He shows up in Bethlehem and trembling, the elders came out to meet him. There's, a, there's, a, there's something emphatic there about that. And, and we wonder, why were the elders so, so afraid? We were not told in the text why they're so afraid. Why are they so afraid? And as we think back through the narrative so far, there could be a whole host of reasons why these elders were concerned. Not least of all, uh, word had probably spread about Samuel and his dealings with Agag, the, the, the Amalekite king who he took out post-haste with, with great vigor. So, so Samuel himself is, is a bit of a force to be reckoned with. Uh, but then also we can know in the minds of these elders there was probably a bit of a percolating guilty conscience as, as Saul's rejection might have been noted more uh, on, on, on a public front because it was the elders of Israel, which would have included the elders of Bethlehem, back in chapter 8 who had really, really, really pushed for a king like the nations. And all of a sudden you have Samuel showing up and what are they probably thinking? Oh, we've, we've made a royal mess of it, and here comes God's prophet. And did you hear about what he did to Agag? So, so there could be all of these kinds of things uh, percolating in their minds. We don't really know what's going on. We're not told uh, exactly what's happening. It may just be that they're terrified because Samuel showed up. And if, if, Saul, finds, <laughs> if Saul finds out that these elders laid out a welcome mat for, for Samuel, well, Saul, I mean, he's, he's very volatile and violent. He's going to be throwing a spear at David in two chapters. He's a violent guy. What's he going to do to us if he finds out we were really welcoming to this prophet who's against him now? So there could be any number of reasons, but, but what's, what's emphasized here for us in our passage, even grammatically emphasized, is the fact that Samuel shows up, these elders are terrified. And Samuel puts them at ease right away, verse 5. He says, I come in peace. I've, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, he says. So then he tells the elders to prepare for this sacrifice. Um, and then specifically, Samuel brings in Jesse and his sons. So this, this clandestine anointing can, can be happening too as the, as the sacrifice is going on. So he's still moving forward with his, with his shadow plan there on, on the, on the uh, anointing front. And, uh, and, and just to pause here, as, as we think about these verses, there, there, are, there, are, there are two things that really stand out in this, in this first section. 
Uh, number one, the experience of God's prophet and the leaders of God's people here, the elders, is one of, of particular adversity at the moment. We see that in the text. So Samuel, he's dealing personally with sorrow over Saul, so much so that the Lord actually has to come and rebuke him to a certain degree. Samuel's sorrowful. Then Samuel's told to engage in ministry in a way that causes him to actually fear for his life. Saul might kill him. And then the elders of Bethlehem, they're dealing with the fact they're terrified. And again, we're not sure exactly why, but all we know is the text is making the very emphatic point that God's prophet shows up and they're afraid. They're afraid. So, so in these first five verses, following Saul's rejection and combined with, with the anointing of God's choice king, which is going to be extraordinarily critical. Now, to the rest of redemptive history, what do we have right at the beginning of all of this going on? Well, we have personal sorrow that's troubling to recover from. We have the very imminent threat of death, at least deep personal danger, and we have fear. That's something that stands out in these verses. And then, and then, on the, and then the other thing that stands out here is, is amid all this adversity, it is that God's purposes are continuing. He's, he's carrying out His plan to anoint a replacement for King Saul. Samuel's commissioned to go, to go do this, and Samuel's obeying. So the Lord's purposes are moving forward. But, but as we think about all of this in the context of that, of that what next question and even the tension that would have been represented in Israel, a tension that we can know in our own spiritual lives, there, there, there can actually be a great deal of, in, of spiritual encouragement to have here because, because oftentimes in our lives of faith, it can seem like there is, uh, is, is never going to be any real moving forward in God's purposes until circumstances even out, until things get a little better. We can, we can be thinking that way. No doubt Samuel would have much preferred to anoint David after he'd moved past his grief over Saul, maybe even after Saul was done away with in a battle that's coming up or something like that. No doubt Samuel would have chosen a different day to engage in this task that God has, has given to him. Oftentimes, it can seem like there's really no moving forward in God's purposes until circumstances improve. But what we soon discover is that when it comes to following the Lord faithfully, it is so often in the midst of even the deepest sadness, even the deepest concerns and fears, it's in the midst of those things that the Lord does His most significant work. And this is a truth that will play out through the storyline of David, but we know this is a truth that's represented very climactically in the ministry of Jesus and in the coming of Jesus Himself, because Jesus comes to carry out God's salvation purposes for the world, His, His great and glorious purposes. And how does Jesus' ministry of perfect obedience, perfect obedience, move forward? Well, Jesus' ministry moves forward, tormented by religious leaders, Jesus' ministry moves forward under the threat of death. Jesus' ministry moves forward with sorrow over sin, the false affections of the crowd, the betrayal of close friends. It's in the midst of great turmoil that the Lord often does His most significant work, which is the truth that, that apexes in Jesus' own ministry. But that's something that's reflected in the narrative here as well, and it's something that exists in our own lives of faith that we need to be aware of. So, so, so often... We, so often I, can get caught up in thinking that the way forward in faithfulness will coincide with a sense of relief. It will coincide with a sense of rest and all things uh, being smooth sailing. But, but even in saying that, I laugh at myself as I say it because, uh, because we know the opposite is more often true. The Lord proves His purposes amid the afflictions that we face. 
Whether it's Pharaoh chasing down the escaping Israelites, whether it's Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, whether it's Samuel braving the danger of Saul's anger, whether it's the elders of Israel concerned in their terror, whatever that might be, whether it's in our own context or whether it's in the biblical narrative as we realize these things, this is a truth for our lives of faith that we need to remember very well and that when we face hard conditions, uh, conditions that leave us asking even this what now question, we need to remember that the Lord's purposes continue. In fact, they're most often carried out amid adversity such as this. And it may be that that's a timely word for you this morning. It's a timely word for me, even for us as a church. The, the Lord's greatest purposes are rarely carried out in times of ease. And as we reflect on our own Christian life, that's probably something we realize has been true for God's uh, kindness and His work in our own lives. Uh, because instead of times of ease, God brings us along in trusting Him, often through times that are full of pressure. And as, as we're brought along in faith, His fruitful use of us and plans for our own growth in Christ-likeness, those things move forward in our lives through seasons of adversity, not unlike the individuals that we meet here in this passage. So it may be that, uh, that you've been sorrowful lately because of things going on, and we need to be able to, to recognize that that doesn't mean the Lord's done and not working. Or maybe we've been a bit fearful about what lies next or what we're going to be facing down the road. It doesn't mean the Lord's done and not working. Uh, but instead, we see the Lord brings us along exactly in times like these so that our trust can be built and so that His power can be put on even more evident display. Which, of course, is, is the cross of Christ in, it, in its very center, isn't it? What, what is the cross? Murderous, bloody, adversity and eternal cosmic victory. Those two things are happening at the exact same time. So, so when we face the what's next question, especially when we face that question from a place of unique pressure, a truth to hold on to is that the Lord's purposes aren't done because stuff is hard. In fact, the witness of Scripture is that the exact opposite is true. The Lord is in the business of fulfilling His purposes amid adversity, and we need to be able to recognize this in our own lives. And it's something we need to be able to speak about uh, to others as well as we encourage them in the faith, our fellow Christian believers, others even as we speak about the gospel. We need to be able to say to them, it might feel like these circumstances you're going through mean that things are over for you, mean that uh, things are done, things are bad, and they're only going to get worse. But we need to be able to say it's actually through these kinds of experiences that the Lord so often shows Himself not just faithful to you personally, but He actually brings your own fruitfulness to bear out of situations such as these. These are, these are not contrary to a gospel life, but actually they're a gospel coupling that comes along and the Lord works through those in a way that brings a great deal of fruitfulness. So, well, it doesn't mean the sorrow's not there. Well, it doesn't mean the terror's not there. Well, it doesn't mean the fear for life's not there on the part of these individuals. It does mean that amid these things, the Lord's purposes are prevailing. They're standing and He's working through this. Uh, for His good purposes. So, that's, that's, that's one place to start. Start right here when we're asking the what now question. Well, we have to understand that the Lord's purposes continue amid adversity, amid sorrow, amid terror, amid concern, all of those kinds of things. Uh, that's first. And then secondly, and we'll take less time with these last two points, but secondly, in verses 6 to 12, we also uh, are able to, to understand that, that part of answering a what now question with our life amid spiritual pressure is also uh, must be combined with an, with an understanding that the Lord sees things differently. It, in fact, it's seeing that is a main theme in this passage, the Hebrew words there in various forms at various times. But, but we need to, to understand that the Lord sees things differently. Um, so if you look at verse 6, verse 6 finds us right in the middle of Samuel 
carrying out the divine commission to, to find the son of Jesse, whom the Lord is going to choose as king. And in verse 6, we have Samuel very excited when Jesse and his boys show up because Jesse's boy Eliab just, just looks like royalty all the way. And, and so in verse 6, Samuel, he sees Eliab and he says, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. I mean, obviously this must be the guy. And immediately the Lord corrects Samuel. He says, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, now it's interesting to note, actually, just how strong this statement is from the Lord, um, in, in that the Lord uses the same rejection language for Eliab that He's just used a whole bunch of times for Saul. And, and, and Eliab was never even chosen. It seems a bit harsh to reject so strongly the one who's never actually even been appointed to begin with. We don't know anything about Eliab. He could be a great guy. We don't know anything about him, right? But, but, the, but the point is being made very emphatically here that the Lord sees in a different way than people see. Even Samuel, for all his faithfulness that Samuel exhibits in ministry, even in this passage, Samuel, who, remember, did what the Lord spoke. He's being a faithful prophet. For all of his faithfulness, Samuel's not seeing how the Lord sees. Samuel's seeing like, uh, like a human sees. Because the Lord's not prioritizing the external features that might make someone or something seem like a sure source of hope. The Lord is saying, I'm looking on the heart of the person. That's what I'm concerned with. Which reminds us of the introduction we had to, to King Saul back in chapter 9 when we were told there was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish. He had a son named Saul. And then how was Saul described? He was an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. And how did that work out? Outside appearances are not what impressed the Lord. They don't mean the Lord won't use a person, just in case we, we develop some kind of strange uh, notions around this. In a moment, David himself will be described in handsome terms. But what we have to understand when it comes to what the Lord sees, what is important and critical in the reality of what it looks like to serve the Lord, the Lord is most concerned not with the outside, but what's going on on the inside of a person. What is the heart condition? So Samuel keeps going here, um, and, and, he, and he's introduced to, a, to another of Jesse's sons in verse 8, Abinadab. Abinadab's not the guy. Verse, verse 9, he meets Shema, but he's not the one. Verse 10, all the rest of Jesse's sons pass by, and the Lord indicates that, that none of those are, are the, the choice for king. So Samuel takes this long shot. He asks Jesse in verse 11, are these all your sons? Which, by the way, remember in Hebrew, the number seven is, is, is a number that indicates completion, perfection, those kinds of things. So, so in a sense, the narrator is telling us, Jesse brought by the complete and perfect number of sons before Samuel. And Samuel's looking at this going, this, this is, the Lord has selected none of these. None of these. So Samuel takes a long shot. He asks, and Jesse says, well, there's this youngest one, but he's out taking care of the sheep. I mean, we saw Eliab, right? We got, I got one more young little son, but we left him back there to do, to do the chores. He, he's not one that you'd necessarily be interested in. Samuel says, go get the youngest one. We won't eat, so we won't participate in the sacrificial meal that's been prepared. We won't eat until he gets here. David, David needs to get here. So verse 12, David shows up. And he's handsome, we're told. But he is the one we least expect. He's, he's the baby of the family. He's out taking care of the chores. And the Lord says, anoint him. He's the one. This is the one. This is the one I'm choosing. 
And, and so this whole scene is worth thinking on a bit because, because when, we, when we wonder, even as we ask this question, what's next, as we think about the way the Lord is working, both in His grand redemptive plan and in our lives, in the world in general, we can wonder how in the world even God is going to provide for me in the circumstances that I'm facing. This is, this is a truth that we need to be mindful of in that the Lord just sees in a different way than we see, even in a different way than His faithful servants can see at times. Samuel was a faithful servant. That's actually emphasized in the text with his obedience here. And yet even Samuel himself is not seeing properly in that we're prone to observe and draw conclusions and even set our hopes on things based on outside appearances. But what is true about the Lord? He's concerned with the posture of heart. So, so the king of Israel, the one who is going to be the first from the, from the promised royal line of Judah, who's going to be the first in the royal line of the Messiah Jesus, this David, he's the youngest, he's off in the field, he has to miss the sacrifices to keep the, the family chores going. David doesn't seem uh, like very much, you know, we can leave David out to do the chores, the rest of you come, Jesse must have said, but David is God's man, and why is David God's, God's man? Because David has a heart turned toward him. David has a heart turned toward him. Which is something that we see in terms of even the way this is anticipating the coming of Jesus himself. Isaiah, former majesty that we should look at him. And he says about Jesus, he didn't have an impressive former majesty that we should look at him. In other words, when Jesus was on the scene of history, you wouldn't have walked up and thought, man, that's an Eliab character all the way. Look at, look at those broad shoulders, a head taller than everybody else. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have walked up to Jesus and thought, this is, just a, this is just an extraordinary looking man. It's no wonder he's God's royal son and all of these things. We wouldn't, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have expected that. And we have, a, we have a prefigurement of that here in a sense. And that, and that David's not the expected one. He's the youngest one. He's gone. But his heart is sorted toward the Lord. And we know, of course, Jesus comes, fulfills God's perfect, perfect purposes as one who only does the will of his Father in heaven. The heart of Christ in that way was completely tuned toward the obedience of, of, uh, of the Father's will. Which is important for us to think through. And that the Hebrew mindset, the heart, isn't just the seat of emotion. We often think about the heart as, as the seat of emotion. It's a, it's, it's a source of love or something like that. But, but in the Hebrew word picture, the heart is, is much more than that in that it's the very core of a person's being. So as one, one scholar put it this way, he says, the heart is the center of intellectual, ethical, moral, religious conscience, the very center of the entire personality and its relationship toward God. That's how the heart is viewed in, 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 in the Hebrew language here. And so, and so the Lord is not concerned with externals. Saul was concerned with externals. We remember that about Saul. Just throw in a couple sacrifices here and then kind of do what I want, making sure the outside is, is fairly cleaned up, but then my heart's going to be going after the things I want the most. No, the Lord is concerned with the inner seat of our personhood and the fact that who we are is turned toward Him, which not only is an indicator of what it means to look at this, uh, the, this messianic king that we're being introduced to here. This is the one the Lord will use, pointing forward to climactically, Jesus is the one the Lord will use. But this is also something for us to keep in mind as we face those questions of pressure in our own life. How will I come through a difficulty in this relationship? Or how will I deal with this situation that I'm facing? 
And so oftentimes we can find ourselves turned in a way that is appealing to those around us, that is appealing to the eyes of man. What are people around me going to approve of? What is going to uh, curry favor with those who, who seem like they're so important and their voice matters, whether it's culture as a whole or, or even interpersonally? And what we must do under a text like this is see that when the pressure's really on, the great concern of the Lord is that the entire ethical, moral, responsible, personal center of ourself is turned toward Him. I want to do what you want, Lord Jesus. I'm in the middle of facing these things, and I've got voices all around me, but what I really want is to have a heart turned towards you, turning back from my sin, turning toward what you call me to do in terms of obedience and life and all of these kinds of things. That's what's important to the Lord. That's what He looks upon. Not how the outside is. Not how the outside is. Not external appearances and what others might look at. He's looking at what our heart condition, uh, how our heart condition is postured toward Him. And so that's just a very simple question to ask. I'm a- I ask myself under, under this text this week, you know, each week I try to write down questions. How, how do I need to be transformed by this passage? And one of them, a very simple question is, how is my heart? How, how oriented is my heart toward the will of God, the ways of God? Does he look upon my heart and say, oh, there is a heart that's following after Jesus? Or does he look upon things and say, well, there's some externals in place, but they're not necessarily reflecting a heart that's turned properly toward, uh, toward me and my way? And it's a, it's a good question to ask him, or ask ourselves, especially when we're going through thicker things. Is my heart in all of this, whatever happens, is my great desire to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? And of course, the wonderful thing about God's kindness to us is He gives us new hearts that long for that uh, to be our ultimate desire. But it's a question that we need to uh, refresh in our own thinking. And so, uh, we bring these two things together. The Lord's purposes continue even amid adversity. That helps us think through what now situations. And the Lord sees differently. There's a, there's a heart that the Lord is concerned with most of all. And then finally, uh, just, just lastly here in verse 13, we also see that the Lord empowers uniquely. He empowers uniquely. When we're, when we're facing particular seasons of pressure, uh, we can know that following the Lord, though things may be costly, uh, following the Lord will, will come with the help of His power. And, and again, this is verse 13. Uh, because after David is indicated as the one, Samuel anoints him in the presence of his brother. So there's still this, this public, in a sense, a, a, a public anointing, but it's still clandestine. It's just there with, with a small group. Um, the concealment thing is still necessary because of Saul. Uh, but then after David is anointed by Samuel, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. And then we have this line. From that day forward, from that day forward, which is really interesting as we think through the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, of God the Holy Spirit, throughout the Old Testament. We, we think of individuals like, um, like Samson, and we find Samson being used mightily of the Lord to deliver the people of God from, from troubles and disaster and all of those things. But when the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in an intermittent kind of way, there and then not there. There and then not there. And we all know where, Sam, where, where Samson went when not there was happening. Right? Uh, and even in Saul's own ministry, we read in Saul in, in chapter 10 how the Spirit of God did come upon Saul. But what's the very next thing we read in verse 14 of our chapter? The Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord does not remain, does not remain with King Saul for obvious reasons. But with David, there's something unique. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. So, so we see that when it comes uh, to thinking about the king of the Lord's choosing, that king will come in the continual power of the third person of the Trinity. 
And that's, of course, something we see climactically in the, in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus came, He was baptized, and what are we told? Well, we're told how the Spirit of God descended on Jesus. A voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. In His earthly ministry, Jesus operated in the continual presence and power of God the Holy Spirit. And David points forward to that in a unique way in that the glory of all of this is that the Spirit empowered David in ministry in order to point us forward to the climactic reality that would not not only mark out Jesus' own ministry, but would mark out all the people of God on the other side of the blessing that Jesus would purchase for us. What does it actually look like to be the one who has a heart that's renewed in God's way? The Lord looks on the heart. What do we need if the Lord is going to look on our hearts? What do we need to have happen to us? We need the Spirit of God to come and make us alive to God. We need a new birth, like Jesus will say in John chapter 3. We need our hearts renewed in the reality of what it means to know God and follow Him. And we need our hearts empowered to do so continually and consistently because left to ourselves, we're no better than Saul, we're no better than Samson. We're going for a while and then we're falling back in our folly and sin and these kinds of things. But what we see in the person of David, climactically in the person of Christ, and then on the other side of that, in new covenant blessing is that Jesus came and purchased this continual presence of the power and help of God the Holy Spirit for His people in a continual kind of way. It's unique here in the Old Testament to have this kind of language because this is really New Covenant kind of language. To have the continual help of the Holy Spirit, this is very unique, but it's unique because David is a unique individual. He's the one who in a special way directs our attention forward to the one who's going to come as God's ultimate and climactic king. And what he purchases for us is this constant and continual persevering strength that comes to us as the ministry of the Holy Spirit is granted to us. So when we, when we have this, this what now question, we have this what now question recognizing that God does work in the context of adversity. His purposes continue to go forward and God looks on the heart and we can read that and we can think, well, that's wonderful that God looks on the heart. I, I, I really like that. That sounds spiritual and, and, and I guess like a very nice thing, but I know my heart. I know my heart in the midst of adverse circumstances. What does my heart do in the midst of adverse circumstances? I mean, all kinds of things like doubt. Not trust. I think about myself more than I should. All of these other kinds of things. But here then we find this final climactic reality and that we're not ultimately left to ourselves for the ministry we're called to. Whether it's David, whether it's us. He does, the Lord doesn't leave His people to themselves to operate in their own strength. Instead, He's the one who supplies the strength they need. David has the Spirit of God continually. We now, because of what Jesus has done, have the Spirit of God continually, and it's in that strength we operate as those whose hearts are turned toward the Lord. This is not an operate in my own kind of strength sort of, sort of Christian life. This is a God grants the power and the help, and I depend upon Him. And as I depend upon Him, I go forward in these ways that are fruitful and faithful. And there's something here in the beginning of this messianic, kingly line that points us forward to the reality of these blessings. So we face the hard stuff, the sorrow, the fear, the questions, what's next, all of these kinds of things. But in this, we can learn that the Lord's purposes, they do continue amid adversity. And we can be reminded that the Lord sees differently. And not only does He see differently, but He does provide completely. He's the one uh, who ultimately gives His own power to help us as we persevere in the life we're called to. Just as David will need the Lord's help, he'll need that Spirit of God to come and convict him of sin and those different things in his life. That's why he prays in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I need your Holy Spirit to turn me back to you. And that's exactly what the Spirit of God does for us now in our new covenant place 
of, of God's great kindness. And so we think about these things and, and we realize that in the beginning of, of the messianic kingly line, uh, there's great encouragement to be had. God is at work and He's at work in ways that we can identify with in our own lives as we seek to follow the ultimate King, uh, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Uh, so Father, we're thankful for Your Word and we ask that we'd be encouraged by this, that the fact that you're the God who empowers us, you're the God who carries us through, that this would uplift us and that we would have hearts turned towards you. Uh, we're thankful that you give us new hearts that long to, uh, to please you, to walk in your ways. We're thankful that those are the ways of life through Jesus. And we ask that we would be faithful in them for Jesus' sake. Amen.